Hey everybody, it is episode 50 of the Running Rogue podcast. This is Chris joining you from Austin, Texas here at Rogue Running. We have Steve as well. Hey Steve. Hello. It is our magical episode 50. It's crazy that we've made it this far and we're super excited to kind of bring you a different episode today. We've We've recorded actually 55 total episodes, including five special editions or six special edition episodes, 49 mainstream episodes. This is our 50th. So we wanted to do a little bit of a trip down Running Rogue podcast memory lane of sorts, play some clips from old shows, and be a little bit retrospective ourselves on what we're hearing in those clips. So we're going to pull some of our favorites and hopefully give you a chance to both sample maybe some old episodes that you haven't listened to, but also get some of our updated takes on a few clips as we dive into it. Before we get there, the other thing I should mention before we get there is at the end, we're going to be talking about a podcast-based training program that we've teased a little bit already. We're going to be doing some marathon-focused training starting in December for those that might be racing Boston or races into early May. So we're going to give a little bit more detail on that at the end of the episode I'll make sure to include in the show notes where you can find that if you need to jump to it or want to go back to it at any point. But that's just something to know. We'll kind of come back to, to that at the end if that's something that has piqued your interest as we've talked about it. So here we go. Podcast mem- memory lane. Steve, we should probably start with a bit of history. <laughs> we started last December. You said memory lane. It makes it seem like we're like old fogies we're and we're like way down but the we, road. We've hey, been doing we, this for a whole year. A whole year, <laughs> but weekly for a year. We started yep. last December on a little bit of a lark. I had been doing another podcast, which we've mentioned on here, called Dads on Duty. I'm no longer recording that, but it had kind of shown me the podcast ropes. And we said, hey, what would happen if we did a rogue podcast? We went into the room. We recorded it. We, not, we, we Our first one was winging it, and we've been winging it ever since. Yeah. <laughs> not knowing if it would even be good enough to publish, <laughs> we, uh, we recorded it, put it out there, and we've had a really good, we had really good response to that, and so we've been recording weekly episodes or publishing weekly episodes ever since. It's been a lot of fun, Steve, and as we go through it, we're going to be talking about some of our favorite clips, and as a part of that, you know, what we kind of got out of doing the show in addition to obviously just conveying information to you guys. So that's a little bit of the history. We've had some cool, I think, stats at this point. We're approaching nearly 150,000 downloads over the last year or so, nearly or over 3,000 per episode. And that's cool. We've had 103 countries represented in our listener base. We've had all 50 states 15% of our listeners are from outside of the United States, which is, so weird. which is kind of interesting. And about half of our listeners are from outside of Texas. And that's so, really cool. So that's cool. It's cool for us I thought to, this would be to interesting, reach beyond. Interesting mostly to the people that we coach. <laughs> that we right. would have in basically Austin, somewhere knows, around, yeah. and maybe some people in Austin. But these four, poor folks who are from all over everywhere else have to hear about what the heck's going on in Austin every week. <laughs> but it's cool. And you know, we've got... Pretty good listener bases in California, Illinois, kind of around Chicago, and New York as well. Those are the top three states outside of Texas that listen. But as I said, we've got listeners in every state, which is fun. And, you know, we're here as a part of this episode also to offer thank you guys for listening because 
you know, if nobody listened, we still wouldn't be doing this. <laughs> but yeah, the I fact that's that we've this, had a response has... Ho- hopefully our listeners will think of this 50th episode more along the lines as a gift to them rather than a gift to us. It's um, a little bit of a love letter to our listeners. Yeah. Because we appreciate it. If you weren't listening, we wouldn't be doing this anymore if there were crickets out there. And it's it's often difficult, I'll say, when you're recording in our little elevated space here at the speed shop it's you and i looking at each other (laughs) nobody else around talking into microphones and so sometimes you don't know how it's going to be or how people are going to respond after you record it but to see people respond to be able to get emails from you guys and to see those download numbers download numbers increase has been really encouraging and has motivated us to kind of keep going so we're in this chris when you said this is what we're going to do for the 50th episode i basically shit my pants because I think you know but I don't think too many other people know that I don't I listened to zero episodes I think I listened that's not true I listened to half of our first or second episode and it gave me the heebie-jeebie creepies to hear my own voice and to listen to my own drivel and I was like I cannot do this but I have to say that I was pleasantly surprised I went back and listened to a number of episodes that I thought would be interesting and Man, our work kind of holds up. It's pretty good stuff, actually. And um, we're a little rambling. I'm especially rambling. Thanks to Chris for keeping us on. But uh, it was it has come off um, remarkably polished um, and or at least rough in all the right ways. So thanks, Chris, for suggesting this because I was um, I didn't tell you initially that I was against it, but. <laughs> I did tell um, Ruth, my uh, my partner, that that this was not going to be any fun, and this was going to be like pulling teeth. Um, and it turned out that I was laughing and joking to the point where she was like, "What are you laughing at?" Yesterday when I was researching. So anyway, it it maybe it is as much a love letter to ourselves as it is to the rest of the crew. <laughs> we'll see. Well, I will say that it's also been fun for me to listen back to our banter through these fifty episodes, and it's definitely helped build our relationship, which has been fun. But we really appreciate you guys listening, and we always welcome the dialogue back and forth. As we've said before, always feel free to email us or send us a note through the website. Chris at RogueRunning.com is my email. Steve Sisson at RogueRunning.com is Steve's email. And at this point, we're getting emails fairly regularly from folks, so we really appreciate that. We wanted to share a couple that mean a lot to us and and we want to recognize a couple of listeners out there that have had some good race results and have given us a little bit of credit for that so yeah. it's pretty cool so i've got a couple of kind of thank you emails to read from listeners this one's from jim who is an army colonel he works at the u.s embassy in berlin so he's listening all the way from germany he recently in september raced the berlin marathon as he had stationed there and he said this amongst other things he said i remembered your advice to stick to the plan. He wrote that in all caps. My classmates both ran ahead of me, and I stayed exactly on pace and plan. I hit my goal exactly with an official time of 3.45.07. I, was also, I, al- I also had a better time than my friends who'd started ahead and ran faster than me at the beginning. The wet and cool conditions were a little tough this year in Berlin, with some, some headliners experiencing DNFs as well. Thank you again for your great assistance. And he went on to say a few other things. So congrats to Jim on hitting congrats. your goal in Berlin. 245 on the nose, baby. Thanks for Good no- thanks Good for work. sharing that. It's super cool to kind of hear these stories. And, and he also talked just generally about how our marathon planning has helped him. 
And then we got another email this past week from Jeremy, and he lives in North Carolina. So in he's stateside, but you know, over a thousand miles away. He said, spring of 2016, I decided that I wanted to run a marathon and eventually qualify for Boston. I've listened to nearly every episode over the last few months and some episodes numerous times. I've listened almost every day since June. I've taken everything you guys have said to heart and applied it in my training. I'm self-coached, so you guys have been my virtual coaches. That being said, I wanted to share with you my results from my very first marathon this weekend in Richmond, Virginia. I trained under the premise... What does the race require, <laughs> as Steve likes to say? <laughs> I towed the line feeling confident and sticking the, to the plan of basically bank energy, not time, as I like <laughs> to say, and sticking with the pacing plan of being consistent through 20 miles and then racing the last 10K. I had three different three-word phrases of self-talk that propelled me through the last four miles or so. My goal was a 317. I finished in 316.02 with a 130 negative split. It felt so easy through 22 miles, but I knew... What was coming in the last 4.2? Thanks to you guys for letting me know that the marathon always wins. <laughs> I wrote this email to say thank you. You guys are the best. So cool. So, Just so cool. Really cool. Really it's hard to do in your first marathon, too. I mean, you know, we always talk about it with, with first-timers. It's either dumb luck... They have no idea what's going on and what's going to happen or just, you know, learning the hard way. Um, so super cool that our reader, that our listener gets to have that experience and um, get, have a great first race marathon experience that isn't dumb luck. So that's that's really, really cool. Um, I, I, uh, I, it was when I read that email, I was like. I think your tech, your tech, your email to me was wow when you forwarded it to me, yeah. and I was like, "This is we've got to comment on this on the fiftieth episode, fiftieth episode." So it's really cool that we're see Chris, we're making an impact beyond what we think we might be doing. We're we're definitely making an and impact. And we're also not full of shit. We've got some, <laughs> well, we know about this <laughs> some things. We know what we're talking about. But congrats to Jeremy, awesome race. I know there's others out there that have emailed us as well talking about some of the things that we've said and we really appreciate that if you have your own story we'd love to hear it so again shoot us an email chris at rogue running and perhaps we'll talk about it on the show but this is really what it's all about for us steve is helping other people change their lives and get faster for the better through this sport so it means a lot to hear these stories because it keeps us motivated to keep sharing our love through the podcast and in other ways that we coach so yeah i want to share an experience real quick i had i shared it with you chris but we haven't shared it with listeners since we're going down memory lane uh, a couple of weeks ago i was uh, at a water stop in austin next to a school for my pm group i had set up a water stop and a guy was driving by and stop stopped at a stop sign creamed his head out the window of his car and says what podcast do you listen to and i'm like Whoa, random dude. <laughs> Some random dude asked me what podcast I listened to. And I didn't recognize him. But as I looked at him, I realized this guy looks kind of fit. And then he sits at the stop sign, which was very pretty busy road that he was on 34th and really close to uh, uh, Jefferson and, and 35th Street. He was really busy and people were picking the kids up and everything. Um, and so he basically pulled forward, got out of his car, came over, and we talked for like 20 minutes about the podcast. Uh, it was about a bunch of different different things. He runs with the Gazelles, but listens to our podcast and said that um, he's very he loves his group. He would never leave his group. He loves his coach. He thinks his coach is phenomenal, and we know that we do know that Gilbert is a great, great coach. But he loves that we bring a different perspective and a little bit of a different way of looking at things. And he gets to participate, he said, in a way viscerally or vicariously through two groups in a way. So um, that was pretty cool, too. Um, so it's it's we've gotten him not only in letters, but we also got him in uh, in uh, 
in, in, in life. And I think at one point you said you were at a race or something, weren't you? And somebody recognized your voice? Or yeah, what was that? I've been recognized by my voice a few times. <laughs> like, are bizarre. you the guy who does the podcast? <laughs> which is so bizarre. That is weird. It's bizarre for me to be famous for anything, <laughs> first of all, but, but to be famous for my voice is really bizarre. But anyway, that's uh, a little bit of a thank you to those who've shared their stories. We really appreciate it. We'd love to hear from others. Now we're going to jump into playing some clips. We've got 11 clips to play, kind of going back down memory lane to both kind of reflect on some of the things we've said in the past, hopefully educate you again on those things, but also remind you of them, and then maybe add some nuances and perspective now that we're a little bit away from recording those episodes. The first one, instead of doing a traditional kind of current events intro, we're going to do a clip that I think tees up a discussion about current events. And then we're going to go back and forth after that between Steve and I kind of talking about some of our favorite moments on the episode. So we've got 11 clips here to play. The first one, as I said, is a bit of an intro clip. And this is actually from an August episode, Steve. I haven't told Steve that I'm going to play this, so he's <laughs> we're going to get his real reaction on it. But it was from an August episode. And basically in our intro, we were talking about how Shalane had joined the New York Marathon field. Mm-hmm. and how she'd made some fairly bold statements about that when she joined the field. So I'll, I just want to hear you listen to you talking about <laughs> Shalane joining the field because I think it's it's pretty cool, especially in light of what's happened. So we'll play the clip, and then we'll talk about it a little bit. So first I want to talk about a recent announcement came out yesterday as we're recording here. Shalane Flanagan has announced that she's running New York City Marathon after an injury earlier this year, and she came back really strong, almost got on the world team running the 10K in June at U.S. Champs, then went on to run a 14.57 5K as she worked on some speed over the summer. But now she's turning her focus to the New York City Marathon, hoping to get a big major win for her. And New York would certainly be that. So, man, it's crazy to think about Shalane Flanagan running 14.57. I mean, that is really fast for a marathoner. It is really, really fast. And seeing her training mate, her training, her teammate and training partner, you know, Amy Craig, have such an, as we talked about in our post-World uh, Championship th- uh, discussion, just having that amazing run at the World Championships. Uh, I'm super excited to see Shalane get after it, especially now that we've, you know, you and I, I think you've always been a Shalane fan. I've always kind of been a, sort of on the fence with her, but over the last six months or so, as I've done more research and seen her sort of come out of her shell in a lot of ways and become be a personality beyond just the runner, um, I've become more and more of a Shalane fan. And for Shalane fan, and for her to run that kind of time, which is really smoking fast for a 5K period, that's boding really well for New York City. And I'm super excited to see. It's kind of cool to think that Amy will be able to pay it forward with Shalane in their training sessions and bury herself a little bit to help her <laughs> training mate. Yeah. It's really, really cool to see Shalane make a return. I, I noticed in the in the, in the the um, news release that came out on it, she says, I think I have one more big race in me. Don't say that, Shalane. <laughs> I'm hoping you have more than one more big it's, race it's in you. It's more than that. I hope sure. so. I really hope so. But I also, but it also shows sort of her fighting spirit too. That she's like, I'm gonna give it. Like I'm, I'm not. I'm, I'm telling you guys this because I want to put it on the wall. I'm pointing at the fence. I'm pointing at the green monster. I'm gonna hit a home run on this day or do everything I can to try to make it happen. 
So there you go, Steve. You're a little bit prophetic, at least <laughs> in the fact that she called her shot and was not afraid to point to the green monster, as you said, and and then go for it in New York, and it worked out for her. You know, in full disclosure, I haven't always been a Shalane Flanagan fan. Um, I think I felt in a lot of ways that she uh, she was self-serving, um, that she didn't pay attention, wasn't, wasn't really, uh, didn't seem to be reaching out to the running community generally, um, and maybe was a little bit too hard for sort of heart of a shell for to be what we would call a, more re- a really graceful hero, right, or heroine, heroine. But I was wrong about every one of those things, and I've copped to that over the last you know year or so, and um, wrong about it in so many ways. And I don't know if you, um, Chris, read that recently that article that came out that was about her and her training, how important she has been. Yeah, New York to, Times article. And New York Times article about her training partners, her, how important she's been not only, first of all, to her training group getting so big and so powerful and have so many great women in it, but also what she's done in terms of the sea change in American distance running for the women. And I, you know, you and I have talked about how much of a change there has been in the marathoning world for women, but I hadn't really given Shalane all the credit and a move like this, stating it, calling it out there, saying she wants to go for the win, and then backing it up with her day-to-day life and the way that she's lived and the way that she's supported um, running. I mean, I'm. it's just, we couldn't ask for a better ambassador to the sport than we have with her. And um, again, I, I stand by my statement. I sure hope that that wasn't her last race. <laughs> I don't think it will be. I do think, um, you know, the the... the, the the clink of money um, and the opportunity that Boston could provide may may pr- provide a great opportunity. But um, anyway, just I, I'm I'm glad I was right, but I wasn't uh, I wasn't 100 percent sure she was going to win. In fact, I didn't call her. I didn't I didn't pick her to win, so you I can't didn't take even any, have her on the podium. I can't I take think. any credit for that, but I can say that I am I was super excited by her attitude and her approach. And you know, who knows what what the future holds with her. Well, there was an article released on Runner's World, an interview with her, went out, came out yesterday. I'll link to that in the podcast where they asked her that question at the end. They said, what are you thinking? And she's, she definitely hinted that she's leaning towards getting on the line again in Boston. I mean, if you look at it, I mean, that's her hometown race. That's the one that means the most to her. You know, I think New York, she talked about also in the interview, interestingly, that she really appreciated the field that New York assembled for for this race this year because it was a good field, solid field, challenging field, obviously, but also a field that she said she could believe in and that they did their homework, kind of picked those athletes that seemed to be doing it the right way. And for her to say that as somebody who's been in it, who's kind of been around these women, it gives me confidence that somebody like Ed DeKipla got Mary Katani maybe are doing it the right way while some of the Kenyans may not be. So anyway, it was just interesting. But in that interview, she hints to the fact that she's got to get on the line in Boston at least. And I would also think, and I'm hoping, for a little bit of a changing of the guard kind of race where you have like mm. Shalane, Molly Huddle, and Jordan Hesse all in the same field in Boston going for the win there because that would be the ultimate passing of the torch to me. And even if she didn't win Boston, I'd still think if she went out there, it would, and, and did it in a way that she would, could only run, which is competitively and with everything she had, then that would be a better way 
to kind of end it for her. So we'll and see. running is unique in other event. It's unique in individual sports in the sense that going forward again and not succeeding doesn't tarnish your image anywhere near as much as it does in say boxing or MMA or some of those other individual sports. You know, it's just getting on the line again against a whole bunch of other great talent. Um, and so I don't think any in any way, shape, or form, no matter what happens at Boston, that it can tarnish or, or take away from what she accomplished at New York. And so why not? Why not take that opportunity, take that chance, especially if you're this close to what she's calling retirement age, which it seems like she really is. Um, but I wouldn't count her out. I mean, she knows how to run downhill. She knows how to run on tough courses. And what we saw from her, those final miles, Chris, whew, that 507, that 505, that 503, she was just rattling them off going uphill in, in, in Central Park. I mean, she's, she's definitely still got it. It, was, it wasn't <laughs> like – I mean, she ran and won the race in a little bit of a slower time for marathon times, but not for, not for what New York is. Right. So, and you know, not I, the way she finished. She's, she's, she's definitely got it. And, and she's Jerry, got a great training partner. So. And Jerry said she's maybe her best Shalane at this point. So yeah. we'll hope that we get to see that. I would love to see the matchup of the young guns coming up versus Shalane versus, I'm sure, a stacked international field. So we'll see. But I thought that was a cool clip because you kind of you were a little prophetic in your in your in your talking about her joining that field. So that's our intro. Now we're gonna go back and forth. We got ten clips. Each you and I have each chosen our five. I don't want to call them favorites, but at least five clips from past episodes that kind of means something to us for whatever reason. And so we're going to go through those alternating between you and I. We'll start with you, Steve. What's your number one clip? Where are we starting? Well, I kind of came at this, not necessarily from clips from that perspective, but more from the standpoint of the episodes that I thought were either, what were our top five, what I thought were our top five. If I was reaching out to someone and said, and they said, Hey, I'm just getting introduced into your, to your podcast. Where would you start? Well, I would I would say well there's a place to start and that's at episode number one I would start them off at all our mental training episodes but the but the place I would say to start off in terms of getting a real good feel for what we are and what we're all about is um, for me it's episodes 23 and 24 where you and I talk about the coach athlete relationship and um, especially uh, sort of the end of the 23rd episode and the beginning of the 24th kind of stretching between those I don't have a specific clip but. It, it, the reason it got in my top five is it hits three main points, Chris. Number one is our relationship and how that has changed and evolved during the context of this process of podcasting. Um, somebody recently told me how much they appreciated how well we worked together. And I think if somebody had asked us that a year before we started this podcast, or even when we started it, if one of our strengths would be our rapport going back and forth, we probably would have laughed. Not necessarily said that, not that we don't have a good rapport, but it's just not something we did. We always sort of came at each other from a coach-athlete perspective or from where we were at business, from a business perspective, and each of us wearing our, our respective hats and not sort of collaborating, as you say, as you would say, and that has been a, a very pleasant surprise and so awesome to have had this experience of having not only a co-working or a co-hosting or a co-coach athlete relationship, sort of a coach athlete relationship, but really looking especially at how much I've learned about you as a person and as a coach and as an athlete. And I mean, who could ask for more? I mean, that's to me, it's like, it, it's, it really, 
raises that. And I think that the listener who goes back and listens to those episodes will hear that we finally caught our groove by that point. By the time we got to that 23rd and 24th episode, we were comfortable in our roles. We were, I realized I wasn't going to have to keep, be the leader that you were going to lead and I could follow. And man, that makes dancing a lot of fun, honestly. So <laughs> I'm hoping you enjoy leading because I certainly like following. <laughs> um, the second thing is we talked in that part about really, we really go through on a point by point basis, but especially on the, on the statement of purpose on, on kind of practically applying the mental training techniques that we'd been arguing and discussing and talking about. And that part to me, when I got bent back and listened to it, it almost gave me goosebumps because I was like, damn, this is cool. Like, this is really what I had. When you said, let's do a podcast, you know, we talked about it very briefly, Chris. I think we mentioned it maybe six or eight months before, sort of offhandedly. I think maybe even Ruth brought it up in some way at, to me at home. Like, maybe you guys should do a podcast because she'd heard about yours. I can't really remember how we got it all started, but it was, some, it was something like that. And then we talked about it for a little bit and then we left it alone. But we came back to it and... Thank goodness we did because though, though that that practical application that people are getting from the things that we're providing here is just really, really cool. And it's also reiterates just that whole point that we I have, which is how meant how important the mental training tools are. And then finally on a personal level, um I think I didn't really realize I know that I've been very valuable to each and one of my athletes in some way, shape, or form, but I never really I think I always got the idea of this concept of coaching as a path with heart, which is something I got from um, Carlos Castaneda and this sort of living your life with as a path with heart, which means that you you it's something with purpose and has meaning. And I've always taken that from my coaching, but I never really saw myself as I don't know as 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 that being important to other people. That maybe that that could be critical for other people. And I think for the first time, I'm but self-deprecating, even though I have a bit of an ego and I have a little bit of an attitude, I really am self-deprecating and I always know that I have to prove my worth each and every time I walk out the door and I don't rest on my laurels in any way. But going back and listening to this podcast made me recognize that I'm doing, and I personally as a coach um, am doing really good work and that I'm changing the world in some small way through what we're doing. And this podcast has allowed me to do that more. And all I have to do is be me. Like I don't, I have to try to be the best me. I have to keep being the best I can be, Chris, but I don't, I don't have to pretend anything. Um, and listening to that episode, and it is really some of our best banter that we do throughout <laughs> the entire, all, I mean, I didn't listen to every episode, Chris, but I listened to a good, a decent number of them. And we're really on in those two episodes in such a great way. So that's why it's number one for me, because it made me realize that, hey, I was, damn, it's, it's really, we're, we're really, it's really good that we did this. And I honestly believe that our listeners are really lucky that we're willing to put this stuff out there. So um, not, I'm not trying to say that as a pat on the back, but more along the lines of when you do good work and you know that where good work is being done and you see those rewards and those justifications and those, and those benefits from people externally, it really is a great reinforcer. So anyway, those, that's a whole lot to swallow, but it, but it has really made me realize how much, um, how, how, that's why that episode is the number one episode in my mind. So it's also a really good preamble. So we'll go ahead and play the clip and then <laughs> I'll give you my thoughts. So for me, the running journey, half of it now is about competing from with myself 
to be a faster version of myself and to, as a result of that journey, uncover things about myself that I wouldn't find out otherwise. And so that's a big part of it. The second part of the equation, which at times I think has changed and evolved for me, but right now I think this is a big part of it for me, which is that I want to do it to show others what's possible. I coach a bunch of athletes. I've got many, many on my roster right now that all look to me and have seen my struggles over the last year. And I've shared that all of that openly with them. They've also seen some of my successes, those that have trained with me longer. And right now I want to prove to them that you can have these bumps in the road and lots of them, you know, in succession. You can have a year like I've had and bounce back and still come through all of that and have your fastest results on the other side of it. And so I want to do it to show them what's possible in themselves for all those of my athletes that struggle because we all do at various times struggle with ups and downs and injuries and times when we have to focus on other things and can't focus on training or whatever it may be. So for me right now, I think it's about those two things. There are other reasons I do it. Like I really like the team aspect of Team Rogue and the collegiality of that and competing with those people I train with on Tuesdays and Thursdays and just being with them and training with them on Tuesdays and Thursdays is a big part of why I run generally. But in terms of being my fastest self, those first two things are the reason why I do it. Cool. <clears throat> so, you know, whenever we talk about statement of purpose, I usually ask my athletes to write it out for me because when they, I have the ability to di- sort of digest it, they have the ability to sort of really think about it as sort of a, you know, I'm going to shout it out from the rooftops. If you listen to that first, ex- the, fir- the, the podcast where we discussed this particular topic, but you've obviously spent a lot of time thinking about this because you're not somebody who just fucking pulls shit out of your ass <laughs> like me. So, <clears throat> I mean, both of those two are really meaningful and worthwhile statements of purpose. So, but there's some questions I need to, I got a little, I got to sort of test yes. the underside of the, of the boat to see if it'll hold water. Um, and so two pokes there are, one is this idea of competing with yourself. Um, it means that there's usually when you're in competition with other people, they are the moving target. So they're the target that's you're shooting for and that they, that you're seeing. This challenge with being competing with yourself or competing against your best self or trying to be run a beautiful race like we say sometimes. Those, those are great speech topics, right? Because nobody pokes a hole in your idea because you're going to walk away and they're going to clap and you're going to move on, right? But what does that really mean? Because I think that in order for that to be a statement of purpose, to be something really strong, can you give us an example or, or maybe not an example because that might not be appropriate, but just maybe delve in a little bit more about some kind of specifics for you personally, where you know that you will have been wrestling with the angel uh, to use the biblical analogy I love to use. Cause that's what you're saying here. I love this as a statement of purpose because it's what we do as human beings, right? Both of these two statements of purpose are Chris being the best human he can be. But what does it mean for you to wrestle with the angel? Because the angel is, is your version of God or a God in you, right? So what does that mean, you competing against yourself? Because if you said you wanted to beat Brian Morton, well, we'd line that shit up and try to figure out how to do it. Because I ain't scared of nobody. But <laughs> I want to know what it means to compete with yourself. Because now as, a, as your coach, how do I use this? Because as a coach, what I do, this is kind of interesting to do this, because as a coach, what I do with my athletes is say, is my athlete full of shit later on? 
I'm able to push Chris when he's having a bad day or he's having a great day. When he's having his worst day, I can use it to lift him up. When he's on his greatest day, I can use it to pull him down because neither our greatest days or our worst days are our real days. And that is not what happens in marathoning. Ask Allison. We just talked about 35K of shit sandwiches and 7K of I can't believe this just happened. So the question is, what does it mean? How, how do you really look at it in a way that I'll be able to use as your coach to help you? So I'll start by giving you an example. When I was 34 running Bryan College Station, that was almost... That was our first, our first cycle together, correct? Well, after you coming back. After I came yes. back. I don't even remember the first yeah, time yeah. I coached you. <laughs> I don't even remember. I don't, I'm not even sure. I, I, that, that's such a shame. Yeah, well, that's yeah. just a After damning indictment to where I was at that time right. in my career. But anyway. But uh, <laughs> I was 34. I was competing with my 24-year-old self. Ah, uh, yeah. And that in that cycle and in that race, I thought about that. And now that I'm three years older, 37, going to be 38 in July, I am more aware of my mortality than ever. And life is, my body's changing mm -hmm. as I age. And so there's something about beating your younger self as you age that's powerful and empowering. Because I was definitely stronger, probably faster in terms of raw speed when I was 24. Mm -hmm. But when I was 34, I was wilier. <laughs> Not stronger physically maybe, but aerobically stronger. And now I think... I'm both of those things and more. So it's it's wrapped up in this idea of sort of facing my own mortality and realizing that if I can beat my younger self, that's hugely empowering. So just to get to brass tacks, that means tell us exactly the time that you need to run that is your former best self. Well, I was going to get to goals in a bit, but... Um, well, we're going to go there, but, yeah. that, but this is a statement of purpose because well, now what you've I mean, done... So, so now what you've when done, I was 34, I ran 245, yep. 40X. Mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't know the exact PR. I'm analytical, right. but not that OCD. Right. And, but I don't want to beat that. To me, beating that would be cool, but I don't want to beat that. I wanna, you know you already did. I can beat that. You know you already did in our prep for Boston. You just well, to get the chance and, to show and it. And honestly, I did it in Martian as well on Correct. a hot day. I Correct. ran 247, but that was easily worth yes. more on a 73 sure. day. So I know I can beat that. But ultimately, I want to run 240. I've told you before my lifetime right. goal that I set arbitrarily when I was in the 20s. It still means something. Mm -hmm. I want to run 240. Because that's a goal to me. It's like if you told, if you asked me, said, "Hey, Chris, can you run 243?" I'd say, "Yeah, I think I can run 243." Hey, Chris, can you run 242? I'd be like, "Yeah, I think I can run 242." Chris, can you run 241? Yeah, I think I can run 241. If you asked me if I can run under 240, I think I can do it, but I don't know. That's the point where it starts to get. I don't know, and and so I know that kind of gets me into that realm of the impossible a little bit and but i i think it's possible but that's what starts to make my sphincter pucker as you say yeah and so i want to run there now that's not necessarily you know my next marathon because i there might be a stepwise in between sure. but um but i want to run 240 for the marathon that's 239 239x yeah yeah so just to clarify <coughs> i want to i want to then ask you to consider refining your statement of purpose okay 
Because you really aren't trying to beat your former self you feel like you already have. What you're doing is you're trying to be the best you you can be or, you know, to sort of, I, I saw this, it, I, I, I'm embarrassed to say this, I went and saw with my, my brother and his daughter, my niece, and Ruth, my life partner, we went and saw Guardians of the Universe Part 2 or whatever it is, I don't know. <laughs> I didn't see Part 1, I was just going with my niece to go watch it. I cried eight times in that movie. It killed me, man. <laughs> it killed me because they're being superheroes. And I had just given that, you know, I talked about this about Boston. Yes. You're asking yourself to be a hero. Like you want to, and what does that mean in our current society? It's not Superman coming out of a fucking, out of the, out of the, out of the phone booth anymore. It's something else. And so let's reclare, not today, but let's think about clarifying that because I think that you, what you're saying is yes that's how you got to this point about what your statement of purpose is but what your still state what your real statement of purpose is sort of is encapsulated in the second part which is you want to be a role model you want to be the anti Barkley right you want Charles Barkley is famous at right. least in our era of saying he was not a role model and what you're saying is you want to be a role model which means that you're even a role model to yourself and you said this in a really interesting way about Allison you said, I heard you say it in that interview with her, she's like, she inspired you. Why? Because she ran again under 239. And you run with her on a consistent basis. You know she's not that much better than you. She's, she, is, she is doing more volume than you are. And she is, has way more successes than you have. But she's, you know there's days where you've had her on the ropes or you've been right with her. And she at least can draw you to the thing that you want to do. And so... You know what it means to be a hero. Role model is such a cheesy word, and hero is such a cheesy word. I don't know the right word for it. That's something we we're working through in this podcast is really what does it mean to be that champ, like the best person you can be, the best runner you can be as an indicator to your athletes, as you said, to your teammates because the esprit de corps of a team is important to you, to yourself because that's crucial and key. I mean, we're, I know we're talking meta stuff here. It kind of sounds a little bit like we're in like a therapy session, but this is what this statement of purpose is. And, I, and the reason I'm not poking holes in Chris as a human being, I'm saying to him, let's get underneath the bottom and the murky deep of what this boat that we all see above water, but underneath it is the real guts of it. And the real guts of it are you want to prove that you're capable and able to be, and that's that's what Carl Jung's entire idea of the archetyp archetypal viewpoint is the entire idea of western symb symbology is around this idea of being the best you you can be and using these models to help you get there so damn straight <laughs> double pump slam dunk on right. statement of purpose I like but it. refine it a little yeah, bit yeah. i think just to take that part of your old self out because you're already there in my opinion and i know i think it's going to be i'm going to have to redo this in in a year when you kill it and we got to go on to the next goal i don't want to have to do that then i want to do it now it's like okay what is that and let's go after it it's interesting listening back to that steve it's for a lot of reasons for me you know i think it's cool that you you brought in that clip because i do think one of the more fulfilling parts of this for me has been developing our rapport and recognizing that and we've always known that we're kind of yin and yang <laughs> anyway. <laughs> you know, I'm the analytical, logical one. You're the mad scientist that, <laughs> you know, believes in magic. And so we've always had, you know, those kind of complementary perspectives, but it's been cool to see that evolve and develop on and the show. And become one thing to our listener. Yeah. You know, like it's, it is the yin-yang, but when we talk about it, you as a different being and me as a different being in this podcast, 
it's almost essential, and, and I think that's what makes this such a great experience for our listener and certainly has made it valuable for us is how do you, how do you work through those differences and come out with something that, someone, uh, that a group of people, one person or a group of people can take away with them. So it, it's been really cool. Yeah, the other thing to me, it's kind of a good reminder listening back, is that this is why we write this stuff down. We put it in front of our face as much as possible. If you've gone through the process of writing a statement of purpose, it's got to be in front of you. And this one has certainly been top of mind. But in in this process, getting through the run for the water, which we, we talked <laughs> about as an epic failure and has carried me through that failure because knowing that, hey, that was just one stop on this journey to achieve this higher purpose that we talked about on that clip. So, you know, so it was kind of like, I mean, I think part of the reason why I was able to move on quickly, not necessarily that I didn't take time to be mad and a little disappointed and frustrated and sad or about not getting my goal, but, but having the bigger picture in my mind saying, look, you know, there's a bigger thing at work here. And so you got to just keep going at it. And so it's been helpful to have that as context as I've worked through this whole process and I'm now on to the next thing. But also, this is a reminder that, hey, you know, I need to write this down somewhere. I need it, you know, I need to play this clip back to myself mm-hmm. more often just as a reminder to kind of connect you to that visceral feeling that's when you know why you're doing something, it enhances and sharpens your edge, your motivation. Not that I haven't had that, but I think if I were to play back this clip and I'm going to bookmark this for myself or write it down more visually and prominently for myself, then it's going to continue to have power for me, this conversation that we had back in, I think it was May. Yeah. (laughs) So anyway, pretty cool. But a reminder to those listening, write down your statement of purpose. Especially cool to hear it in the context of the quote unquote failure that you had at Run for the Water and you know, you say two things. I want to run under 240, and I want to be a hero to the athletes I work with. And the things you experience that run for the water are certainly going to better prepare you to do both those two things. But one of them was a living of that with you being a hero, and the other is you had to you had a bump in the road, and, and how are you going to get over it, and let's do everything we can do to try to minimize that bump in a future circumstance. So there you go. That's clip one. Thank you for sharing that one, Steve. We're going to go to my first clip, our second of this recap show. And mine, I've kind of ordered mine differently. These aren't necessarily in order of importance, but one of the things that this podcast has done for me, and this clip is part of the reason why, is that it has made me appreciate the sport again in ways that maybe I lost as someone who is a bit of a cynic. We've talked about a bit jaded, maybe a little bit pessimistic as it relates to some of the doping stories in the sport, some of the bullshit with IAAF and with USATF and some of the governing bodies, all of that stuff, which we talked about on this episode, I'm going to reference. It's, it can easily push you away. And there have been times when I have been pushed away But getting back into this and starting every show with current events and seeing, you know, the fact that we talk about that, not scaring people away and and actually (laughs) 
people wanting us to talk about it more and getting interested and fired up in the sport because of what we're talking about. And then my ability to dive into it as well, even more than I would prepping for the show, has just really rekindled my love for the sport of track and field and for running beyond the track in ways that, you know, it's hard to sort of measure how much I appreciate that because it's it it brings me motivation, it brings me happiness, it brings me joy to follow it and to see the good stories. And so this clip, I think, is one of the reasons why it's done that for me. And this is going to be Kara Goucher talking about her experience in seeing some of the underbelly of the sport and why she's still a fan and still in love with it. And it kind of captures for me why I'm also still in that place. So here we go. The great Kara Goucher. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's definitely been a lot of dark days where I didn't love the sport anymore and I didn't believe anything that I was seeing. And you just kind of go down this rabbit hole. But in the end of the day, like, um, I love running. I love what <laughs> running's given to me. I love the experience of running. I love the relationships helped me form. I love the opportunities it's given me. And so... I still love watching someone kick it in and win by surprise, like watching Robbie Andrews kick it in and win that 1500. I still like seeing that. I like seeing, you know, Emma Coburn go out there with all the pressure on the world and still pull off the victory and Jenny Simpson. And so there's so many things about it that I still love. And so it's kind of like making an actual choice to focus on those things. There are times where I have to focus on the negative things and it's hard and it doesn't make me like the sport. It makes me, a little bitter and a little angry. Um, and so when I'm fighting for something like in a doping case or discussing with USADA or, or IAAF, you know, I might have to be a little bit angry, but I'm, I, then I choose to leave that behind and to focus on all the, the cool things that still are there. You know, the when Adam made his first team, it was beautiful and exciting and awesome. And there are still people that are experiencing that. And I want to I want to see that and feel their joy because I still love that part of the sport. Kara puts it pretty well, right, Steve? She sure does. You know, the context that this is still a human endeavor. You know, these are people, flesh and blood, on the line, and they don't have superpowers. They're just everyday guys and girls, men and women who have transcended to the best of their ability to get to the place where they are to to produce great results and great efforts. And, you know, I say it all the time. To me, no matter, I like watching horse races. I like watching boxing matches. I like watching, watching all those things, regardless of what I think might be the dark part of them, because I just like to see a race. You know, I just like to see people try to go after each other and see who comes across the line first. Whether you watch a junior high 400-meter dash or, you know, you get an experience of watching Meb Kefleski pull off the win of a era at Boston it's still just people racing against themselves the time and other people and it's super cool yeah and it's cool for me to see somebody like that who's been through it I mean when she came out against Alberto Salazar and her group her, her old group at Nike and to get the visceral reaction she did both from that group as well as those that might be sympathizers of them she has every reason to be jaded to hate the sport or to hate representations of it. So it's cool to see that it just comes back to, as she said, very simply, I love running. So, And I think in that episode, you know, we were really nervous. We kicked off that episode 
and basically Adam Goucher was like, fuck the sport. <laughs> and uh, he wasn't saying that by the end. He'd gotten all the way back around again with that. And that, that episode, you know, Chris, I think we, we were really nervous about. I think it was probably the most nervous we'd been at any point in time in doing this, talking to running royalty. But they, they were just everyday people, and that was so cool that that... Um, you know, the only thing I only regret I have about that episode is I just wish we could have had them here live and in person. It would have been right. super cool. But so that was episode thirty-one. I think it's also a reminder that no matter what you're doing, whether it's running, whether it's your job, whether it's stuff you deal with, maybe with your kids at school or whatever it may be, attitude is so important. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of shit we all deal with maybe even now more than ever in with some of the political climate and things like that. But if you just choose to look on the positive side in that episode, she also talked about the positive positivity journal that she has where she yeah. writes down positive things. That was such a cool revelation. Every, every element of her training, she tries to bring out a positive in it to keep her mind space in the right spot. And so it's just a good life lesson too, that mindset is everything. All right, so there you go. Episodes 23 and 31 have gotten mentioned so far. Steve, we're going to go to your second on our trip down memory lane here. What do you have for number two? I've got um, the GOAT episode uh, that we did with John Shrupp, and uh, it was episode number 47. And the reason why I have this in my top five is because I just was completely shocked by... Um, a historical figure who I probably had underestimated over, had, I felt had been overinflated by historical proportions. Nobody, everybody, everybody just paid attention to him because he, he was one of the, he was, he ran, he won so many gold medals and he did so many amazing things back in the 20s and the 30s. But I learned so much researching Pablo Nermi and things I've continued to utilize in my coaching today to the day to this day my new favorite quote in the world um uh, uh, superseding my favorite uh quote from uh the boxer mike tyson this one is now my new favorite quote um and i just was completely shocked that uh that i had i wasn't i just thought we were i was pulling pablo nermi and just to give some historical context and at the end of the day, I think in my mind now, as as we've been talking more and as Bekele, again, didn't get it done, I'm sort of like, maybe Pablo Nurmi is the greatest of all time. And maybe I didn't pick. But I, I think that was a big shock to me, Chris. I didn't expect out of this experience of having a podcast that I would be surprised that much. And, um, you know, it's just, it, it's, he did a lot of things that were very different, Um you know, he, he, in my opinion, is what made our sport famous and made our sport go from the, he definitely took it from the amateur era and he brought it onto a world stage where people are paying attention to our sport and seeing our sport is valuable, seeing our sport is important. And he made it sort of a legitimate endeavor to do. It wasn't just, you know, plodding through the fields or going for a walk and then running against each other. And it wasn't like what was sort of the sporting idea of the, sporting ideal all the time of a gambling and sort of uh, sort of a bit of a negative connotation to the sport he brought it to the brought it to the world level and the world stage 
And I think that every athlete, every every distance runner in the world has a debt of gratitude that they owe to Pablo Nurmi. And I didn't see it before this. I just didn't see it. I saw it as a theoretical instead of as a real. And, um, you know, he pioneered so many things that I think are, are essential to being a great runner, a great athlete, a great person. And then at the very end of it all, after all that said, it could, I say all those things which I think were so are so positive – he also gave us this great quote about the mind, which we just talked about it. You just said it with the end of the care thing about how important the mind is. His quote is, and I'm quoting him, mind is everything. Muscles, pieces of rubber. All that I am, I am because of my mind. And I wish I could emblazon that quote as I go into a bunch of athletes getting ready to run a big race coming up here in the next couple of weeks. I want them to be thinking about that quote and that that is so true, that what they are is what they think and what they are is what is going on between their head and their mind. And he didn't phrase this in a sort of a, of just positive self-talk kind of thing. This was much more about everything he did. He did it with a purpose to get his mind right, to be ready to do the great things that he did. And I think he was, his pioneering wasn't just the physical things he did. It was the way he brought the mental aspect to the fore as essential and important and, and it's my number two because I was, I was flabbergasted and shocked, and I didn't expect that to happen. All right, so here's a clip from episode 47, us talking about one of the greatest of all time, Pablo Nurmi. Pablo Nurmi has won more gold medals than anybody else in our, in the, of the people that we're going to be talking about as the greatest of all time. How many? He won nine gold medals. Nine gold. Nine gold medals. Olympic and a, golds. A nine Olympic a, gold medals. There yeah. was no world championships. At the t- uh, yeah. uh, so they didn't get as many opportunities, which is why, you know, John and I were talking before, well, John was mentioning before that there were there was cross-country available as gold medals in the 20s and 30s, which isn't there anymore. But there's no way that Pavo could ca- that Nurmi could catch up to the kind of world championship and options that athletes like Bekele and Gabriel Selassie, and especially when you look at Bekele's ability to win world cross-country championships, it's there's just no way that 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 Pavel could score enough points. But he's got the most gold medals. Now, at the time, he didn't have... He was, you know, he was the start of... Well, there was a gentleman named Hans Kolomany who was like 1912 or so, was the first real great Finnish runner. And he basically inspired the great Finns of the 20s and 30s that they basically started calling the Flying Finns. And they basically completely dominated distance running from the 20s and the 30s. I mean, every almost nearly every world record, nearly every gold medal that was won, it was first, second, and third Finland. Um, and Pavo Nurmi is by far the greatest of these. And um, so the other argument that you can make for him being the greatest of all time is the number of world records that he set. So he's got world records, and then he, he's got he's scored he's he had twenty two world records. At one point in time, he held the world record. I think it was for the fifteen, the mile, the three k, the five k, the ten k, all at one time. No human being has ever done that before. Of course, again, is the question is was his competition great enough? Was there enough people out there? But he was f- by far the most dominant athlete of his time. Um, and then he had another like twenty some odd other world records but they weren't considered IAAF the IAAF was just coming up that's the international athletic athletic something federation but it was the sort of the beginnings of people paying attention to what 
what the rules were, what winning was, who, where the world, where they where they were going to have the the Olympic Games held, where they were going to have other things held. It was the first governing body that there was for well, the sport. Well, the marathon at that point hadn't been certified at its distance of twenty six point two miles. No, they had a long marathon so and a short marathon. The world record for twenty five mile marathon. Correct. At one point. Correct. Which was sort of an uncertified, unofficial deal. And he would have broken the world record on that day. He only ran one marathon in his life, which which I'll talk about in a little bit. But he only won one marathon ever. And it was the short distance, and he would have been somewhere nearly 10 minutes faster than the world record for the real long marathon distance. So it just shows how far ahead he was than everybody else. The really interesting thing about Nurmi is, um, he, so number one, he came from absolute poverty. Right? He lived in a one-room house with an entire family of like 20 people. And then at one point in time, they rent. Oh, no, he, he lived in a small, a two-bedroom apartment or two-room apartment, and then at one point his father passed, and so they had to actually rent one of those rooms out to get money, and the rest of their 20 people lived in one room. So he was like absolute abject poverty, and they, they talked frequently about Nurmi, his taciturnness, his sort of grumpy. He didn't socialize with people very much. Um, everybody else was sort of slapping each other on the backs, and there was a fraternity to the sport, and Nurmi was known for being not communicating very much with other people. Um, he basically had a game face, on all the time and I think when you come from a place where you know poverty and you know difficulty you probably take it really really seriously um, yeah so he was by far the most dominant runner of his time and you know he didn't get the chance to win you know I think one of the other things that would have cemented him in my mind as being um, the, the, be the greatest of all time he needed to win an Olympic gold medal in the marathon in a sense for me to be sort of in that to be to be able to pull to be able to make up for the level of competition that we're going to talk about with our with our later generation runners, um, and then for him to compete with the other runner that we're going to be talking about, who was one of the early era potential greats, um, he didn't win a gold medal, but it, in the marathon, but it wasn't his fault. I never knew this until I did the research, and I've known about Nurmi almost my whole life. In 1932. Like a week before the 1932 Olympic Games in London, in, uh, in, in Los Angeles, the IAAF basically stated that he was, he, he was not allowed to run in the, in the Olympics because of breaking rules about amateurism, which basically he went to Germany and he did a German tour. He also did a U.S. tour. There were these famous tours. These guys were so good that they would go for 45 days and run a race nearly every day in different locations around the United States so people could watch these flying fins and watch these competitors run. Well, he he was he had made evidently made some money above what was allowed or the argument was that he argued that he never did take any of that money, but there was a lot of pressure the IWF put on the German Federation to say you better come up with some rules. You better come up with some way that we're not going to let this guy run. So his plan was just to run the marathon there. He qualified for it, but just before the just before the Olympic Games, he was considered ineligible and wasn't allowed to run. And so for me, that's another piece of the puzzle that's like, if he had done that, he probably would have risen um, at least to the level of Zadopek or um, and then also with the other guys that we'll be talking about. So, yeah, I mean, in terms of impact, in my opinion, Nurmi is going to be, he's the sort of the, the predecessor for some of the greats we're talking about. Um, later on, and I think that his impact and his ability to um, galvanize a, the sport of running, making the sport of running popular in all the rest of the world, he was the first real popular runner. Um, 
you know, I think that it, he's, there's a good argument for him to be considered the greatest of all time. Those are my arguments for him, why you would consider that. It's also worth noting that <clears throat> in the 24 Olympics in Paris, he ran the 1500 and the 5K within an hour of each other, won both, and set new world records at both as well. I mean, Another the guy was just a beast. And a really interesting sub-story to that is, um, depending on where we go with this GOAT series and if we're going to go into individual s races, well, one person I think the three of us would probably consider the greatest miler of all time would probably be Hisham El Garouche, or at least be definitely in that mix. And Hisham El Garouche said that his grandfather's lifelong hero was Pablo Nurmi, and he raised his grandson, or in his grandson, asked his grand, told his grandson that if he wanted to be the greatest of all time in his sport, he needed to win the 1500 and the 5K in the same Olympics, because Pablo Nurmi did it. So there's another thing there too, where a little bit of yep. the history reaching forward to the to the more recent past, and what kind of a stretch that is for somebody in the middle of nowhere Morocco to know about a 1920s Finnish athlete. Um, Nurmi was an absolute legend at the time, and still a legend to this day. And part of it was because of his, as you said, he was sort of stoic, kind of had this way about him that people recognized and kind of became part of this word that we hear from Finland that's a part of actually fin Finnish culture broadly called Sisu. And so he was one of those people that people would look to and say, that man has it. Mm -hmm. And it's a word that has no direct English translation, but it's a word that people try to define. There's a couple of of different ways I, I saw it defined as I was doing my research in, in 1940 time magazine defined it this way after describing some of Finland's contributions in the war effort. It said Sisu is a compound of bravado and bravery of ferocity and tenacity of the ability to keep fighting after most people would have quit and to fight with the will to win. Later it was defined in a actually a psychological study as a reserve of power which enables extraordinary action to overcome a mentally or physically challenging situation. So you're talking about kind of guts, you know, ferocity. That was who he was. Huge yeah. pendulous nuts. <laughs> so you you had to go there, Steve. <laughs> yes, huge, I did. Huge pendul pendulous yeah. nuts. I'm not afraid. But Nermi had it. He was Sisu defiant. Yep. And as somebody that everybody should look to as a role model or hero of sorts from running history past who had that, quote, reserve of power that I mentioned to to find something more when everything was on the line. And we can all take that and recognize that there's always more in all of us. <laughs> I think it's also, it's a, it's a nice kind of point to reflect on our ser series on mental training and the importance of it. You know, we did that because we recognized that not a lot of people were talking about that side of training. Everybody talks about the physical side of training and that is a muscle. The mind in a sense is a, a muscle of sorts that can be trained. And so if you don't have that or feel like you don't have it, you can find at least more of it by following what we said on the mental training series, but also looking back at guys like Pablo Nermi. For sure. For sure. All right. Now we'll go to my second clip. And this one is more of an obscure reference. <laughs> but I think the segue here is good because I actually pulled it from one of our mental training episodes, number 11, 
where we talked about why do you run. We talk about the statement of purpose in there, but you kind of preface things defining some words and just by way of reference for those that want to go back and kind of look at that mental training series holistically it's episode 6 11 13 18 20 25 32 and 40 we did eight episodes on it but in this one number 11 we talked about why do you run we talked about purpose but before that you kind of defined some words for us that I think really set the table for the whole series in a way you probably don't remember. Probably. But I remembered and and one of the things that I appreciate about you as a coach as well as a partner in a lot of things is that you're somebody who's always willing to to learn and evolve and read more and figure out what you don't know. And so you know, sometimes you get a little heady with things <laughs> at times. <laughs> But it's always powerful. And so in this case, we have an example of that. I'll play it for you, and then we'll talk about it. I'm going to go over these discussion, these dis, these definitions, and then we'll show some practical applications as we go through the steps. So the first is volition. And, um, you know, it's sort of the way I like to look at volition. It is the decision. So it is the act of making the choice. Any athlete that's ever been coached by me, at some point in time, they've heard me say, it's just a decision. Whatever you decide to accomplish on any, at any given moment, at any given day, at any given big picture, it's a decision. But most importantly and most critically from the outset, you have to make the decision. And that decision um, frequently, especially as we talk about it from the context of motivation, um, really is really is sort of before anything else you know it's like the start um and then we'll talk about a little bit about intention and that's sort of my my idea of that is right you know again it's sort of the act of taking your volition and carrying it out so the way i'm framing that is sort of the decision is taking that decision and moving it into action so it's literally taking it from a theoretical into a practical or applicant applying it and then will, which is sort of uh, got a whole lot of different meanings in the in English, especially if you think about Nietzsche and if you think about um, free will from a sort of uh, Christian or theological perspective. There's a lot of meat on the term will, but from our for our perspective, I'm sort of going to be talking about it from sort of like a consistent application of the decision or your volition into action. So volition, it's a that, lot of heavy shit right there. A lot there. of heavy heavy <laughs> shit. <But> volition. <laughs> And that idea of the decision is sort of one of my favorite moments in this because we talk a lot about purpose, which is important. Understanding your purpose is important. But before that, as you said in the clip, comes this decision that you're going to commit to the process of discovering your purpose and carrying that through to achieving goals, going after goals. There's also other decisions that we make in training, a decision to follow a coach and trust them, a decision to follow a race plan like Jeremy talked about at the beginning in our in our email that we referenced, there's so much that comes down to have you decided, or for me in my 10-mile race, I made a decision to go with the plan even though the weather conditions weren't great. And yeah, the outcome didn't work out the way I wanted, but at least the decision was there because that decision is so important. Not just in running, but in so many things that we do. It's like you got to decide. I also, you know, it's like I think about our world today and we live in a world where you know you get an evite or 
an invitation to go somewhere and everybody sits on their hands and waits to RSVP <laughs> until the last minute, right? Frustrating every host that might be listening. And we live in this world today where people are afraid to commit. They're afraid to decide to go something because then it will somehow mean that if they can't do it or they don't get it or they failed, then they're letting somebody down. And so I just wanted to remind people and remind myself through kind of this journey that that decision is so important at the beginning, that commitment. And we've also talked about it in the context of some of the elites like Shalane. She made a decision to cover every move. She made a decision to put herself in a position to be able to run away at mile 23. None of that happens. That win doesn't happen had she not made the decision to be there. And so I wanted to make sure that in the midst of all of our discussion about purpose, that we don't miss and lose the fact that it's also important, the decision to be there, to go for it. It's almost as if the decision is more important than the purpose, Chris, right. <clears throat> because the purpose is the foundation and the sort of the, 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 the why behind what's going on. But in a battle, when you're getting shot at, you're not going, why do I do this? You're just reacting. And if that decision has already been made, then then, you know, you you're acting and reacting appropriately because you want that, you know. That decision also comes down to sort of another way of phrasing that is sort of how bad do you want it, right? Because it, it, the decision is to move and to go for it, but then you have to back that up. That volition is the backing that thing up and saying, I, I want it. I, I decided over and over and over again, right? So it's sort of, there's sort of a part of the same piece in a way. Um, and the argument can be made that with the statement of purpose, you never would have gotten to the place to make the decision. So all these are interwoven and intertwined. But I, I intertwined. But I can tell you this: in my experience in coaching, the athletes who have the best results are the athletes who have decided. In every case, and nearly every athlete who has decided eventually reaches their goal. And I will tell you, I coach a lot of athletes, and I've coached a lot of athletes, but not many athletes decide. I think it's the und there's they think they've decided, but that volition of deciding and deciding every Tuesday morning, every Thursday morning, every Saturday morning, and all the other days in between to be what they want to be and to get what they want. Yeah, the statement of purpose helps refine that, but they still got to get their ass out of bed, Chris. They still have to put those miles in that aren't. They have to do the one percenters that we talked about, and that happens from that decision place. And man, when you have athletes that are in that decisive space, not only are they a pleasure to coach, but they're nearly always successful. Maybe not in the short term, like in your case, in the run for the water, you might not have reached that goal. But I know that that experience and being decisive about that experience will allow you to, again, have the willingness to be decisive and make a decision again and be unafraid of that. And... Um, it's really impactful and powerful. I'm glad you pulled that out because that's something that a lot of people miss. So get off the fence, decide, <laughs> yeah. commit, and then recommit. Whether it's running or life, so much is imp so it's so important to decide, make the decision. Okay, that was my second. Steve, on to your third. What have you got? So for my third one, I'm referencing uh, the chasing excellence with Coach Barnett. Um, episode number 26. And I think maybe the main reason I chose this one is just because I think it may be the one, the one episode out there that our listeners may have just skipped and may not have gone back. So if I had to pick sort of this, this pick for me is sort of 
you probably you may have missed this one. If you did, you missed some real gems and you missed some gold. Um, and the area that I want to focus on with Coach Barnett's discussion, which he was wide ranging, um, especially informative from what the sport of cross country is. So anybody that's curious about that, it's great to go back for it from that perspective. But more importantly, we talk about we talked in this episode, Chris, about how hard it is at a small school for him to have created a culture in which excellence could be. And he boiled that down. We kind of pushed him on this one. I, I know I was pushing him, mostly because we kind of wanted to get down to talking about his Pavo system, but she never really ever gave us a full description of it. He did sort of, but it, it, it was still not from the standpoint of what we were looking for of the, of the, of the physiological geeked out thing. But he did tell us the most important part of what he does, and that's that his team has a philosophy, a philosophy of what every man or woman on that team is committed to. And when they've committed and made that decision, as we just talked about it, they they commit to that philosophy. That philosophy, if it's strong enough, will bind them together through nearly any challenge. This is a program that has had huge amounts of challenge. Beyond the day-to-day and the, and the momentary, they also had an absolutely epically tragic situation happen for them where two members of their team were hit by a car early in the morning on an easy run. Um, on the highway, and it was just every time Coach Barnett and his team picked themselves up and continued on because they had this philosophy. And I think that, um, you know, we talk about that. We've spent a lot of time talking about the real nuts and bolts on this on this, on this this podcast. And, you know, I definitely get heady, as you said, I, and I definitely get in the philosophical space, but I quickly and very rapidly bring it, boil it right back down to, to specifics and to practical applications. But I kind of wanted to pinpoint this episode as more of a, and this section is just more of an open-ended thing because it ended up helping him get the results that they've gotten over the last eight years and even all the years that he got before that, before he actually won eight straight titles at the cross country. So to me, it's a lot about the insight of, of making a decision, having a team have a philosophy, sort of making a decision in a group sense. And really, it, in, a, in, a weird, in a weird and interesting way, he brings it back to the way he created his philosophy. And his basic distillation of that philosophy is not really excellence. Excellence is the outcome of that philosophy. But the philosophy was, what is, what is it going to take for my athletes to run at the highest level? And so he had this, his philosophy was based on this sort of this matrix he creates that based on what does it take to be top five in the state or the top 20 in the state because that's how they'll win a title and they go in trying to win a title. But as he talked about, and I digressed down that whole route, it was basically what does the race require? And their whole team were driven on a philosophy of doing what it took to be winners in a real practical way. So I know that sounds maybe a little bit convoluted, but I really love that episode and I really thought there were some gems in there. And I think that specific one is, is, is something that I think all of our listeners could take away beyond the cross-country discussions. Okay, here, here's Coach Barnett talking about their team philosophy of chasing excellence. Our, our philosophy at Luling is real simple. It's excellence, which then it, it becomes individual excellence. And the word's thrown around a lot, excellence. It's never defined. And so we define it for the kids. Uh, I define it for them. And excellence is basically a quality effort against a, a quality standard. And so you learn what the standards are. You learn what the demands are. 
uh, for your sport, and you find out where you're at as an individual, and you begin to chase your individual ability uh, along with knowing what the state meet landmarks are. What, what, what does a kid need to run the mile in uh, in order to be able to be uh, a potential state qualifier? What does a kid need to be able to run the mile in in order to be a, maybe on the medal stand top 10? And then you start to design your training around those benchmarks, if you will. And so you're constantly taking uh, samples mm-hmm. along the way to find out what the fitness levels are. And then you, you, you know, you just you modify the training uh, to allow the kid to be able to go there. And you put, but you put that out in front of them. You don't keep that in as a coach. And you say, give them measuring sticks. You give them measuring sticks mm-hmm. so they can measure themselves. And then you help them understand that as a team, you know, seven guys, seven girls, whatever. You all need to be able to run the mile this fast, and then you need to be able to run tempo runs this fast in order to get the higher-end aerobic stuff so that you can then carry that over a 5K course. And so if you can run that time, you've got a chance to be on the medal stand. And it's, you know, it's, but it's, it's, the philosophy is excellence, and, and that's against a landmark or a benchmark or a measuring mm-hmm. stick. And so mm-hmm. as they achieve those things daily in practice, they get closer and closer to not only achieving individual excellence, but then getting closer and closer to the landmarks that will allow them to compete at the state meet. Quality effort against a quality standard. Yeah, it's key right there. I loved that he talked about his process to get to that point. Yeah. You know, how he was digging, digging, digging for the secret workouts, the the kind of little nuances that he might get out of Hill and Jack Daniels, who, by the way, are coaching gods. You know, they're on the Mount Rushmore of U.S. coaches. And so he was digging, 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 but then realized it all came down to kind of having a unifying perspective that would make the details of training fit together. It's so true. So true. And he he began to realize that it's not well, it has to be applicable for him and his school and resonate with the young men and women that he has as athletes. And he found a way to do that. He found a way to, for excellence to be real and to be palpable and to be a, 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 a living thing for them. And he got them to buy into it. He gets them to buy into it. And it's just a beautiful, beautiful thing, Chris. It's one of the things when I see that, that it, it, as we have a wonderful team at Team Rogue, I feel like our Team Rogue team has gotten so much closer. We've had big challenges. We've gone ups and downs. But, it, it, but it's never going to be what that collegiate experience and that high school experience is where people are racing and their, count, and their points count towards a result. And um, so I'm always super, I miss that part of the sport, but so many other pieces of being a, a coach at Team Rug are so much greater that it, that it, that it works. But it, it was really, it's just really cool to hear Coach Barnett talk about how he got there. And I think, again, if anything else, if nothing else, this is a great episode for people to listen to, to see process and how that plays out. Excellent defined. Thank you, Coach Barnett, in episode 26. All right, my third episode I'm going to mention here is actually one where we brought some listeners on. Gene and Ardith came on. This one almost made mine. Yep. <laughs> and this was episode 38. They had kind of reached out with a bunch of questions. They're like, hey, we want to pick your brain, brains. And we said, fine, let's do it 
live on the podcast. So they put their heads together, came up with some questions, and then brought it on the show with us, which was a really cool experience. This clip that we're going to listen to is Gene kind of calling bullshit a little bit on us. <laughs> and and so I think it's it's an interesting clip for that reason. Kind of it shows some of the dynamic and back and forth that you should have coached athlete. So we'll we'll see what Gene calls bullshit on and then we can talk about it. Okay, so um as somebody who's been running for a long time, you know, and we've I've done training programs with you guys and with others, never talked about mental training with anybody. And so when I started listening to the podcast and Ardith and I started having this conversation about what you were talking about and what it meant to us, you know, one of the things I was like, wow, what is with all this mental training? Like I never, I've been running for years and I never knew I had to have a purpose and do a little art thing and, you know, <laughs> transcend. <laughs> so it's kind of, it was kind of weird. And, but then as I was thinking about it and I was thinking about Boston, cause I did it just this spring. Um, I did some of these things and I didn't really even realize I was doing it. So throughout the race, you know, I was talking to myself and I had these little mantras and whatever, but, and I, and I visualize, I, I do that a lot. And I've always known that I do that. I'll visualize the finish line actually almost in every run that I do. I paint an imaginary finish line and I imagine that I'm crossing the finish line in whatever race is coming up. So I do it constantly. Um, anyway, so the, the question is, I really want to know like how, how these things really get incorporated in, like how you have a dialogue about mental training and you know, why, why do you need this? So, for example, having a purpose. I've never had a purpose for running. I just do it. And so I just don't know how that relates to what's going on. Well, first of all, I think your point about not a lot of people talk about mental training is one of the reasons why we've done the podcast on it, because we recognize that it's as big a part of deal as the physical side of things. And so that's why we wanted to, to do and create content on it, because Frankly, it is often neglected by any program. Going back to, though, your question on why does the purpose matter? To me, as your coach, that's an easy one to answer because <laughs> because I uh -oh. know uh -oh. I, I know <laughs> that you have purpose running. And, and I guess to me, to frame it back to you, it'd be what would happen if you didn't have running? Because I know how much it means to you, right? To the point yeah. where it can be emotional at times. So what would happen if you didn't have running? And I think if you can answer that question, then it points to why you do it. I don't really think I could survive without running. I don't think I could make it through the day. You know, if I don't run in the morning, my day sucks. So I like that one for a couple of reasons. One, because... Just like our dynamic and the clip you mentioned at the beginning, you know, that was a little bit of Gene and I, our dynamic playing out. You know, she's an athlete that I coach on Wednesday mornings at 530 with the morning show. And we've she's been in my group for a couple of years. And honestly, we'd never talked about her purpose, at least in a specific way. 
you know, it's something we've kind of danced around or referenced, but but never had the opportunity to talk about it in a specific way. So her kind of questioning, what's the importance of this, created a good dialogue back and forth that I think has advanced our relationship coach-athlete and also shows the importance of the dialogue back and forth between coach-athlete. But the second thing is obviously it gave us a chance to kind of highlight <laughs> the importance of purpose. And we, I had a subsequent follow-up lunch with Jean where we specifically kind of dug into her purpose and tried to define it more specifically. And I think she walked away stronger from that. And we walked away stronger as a coach-athlete pairing than we had before this episode kind of prompted that conversation. So so it, it was cool to her to, for her to kind of call us a little bit on that. I know some people think it's cheesy when we talk about purpose or, hey, what's all this bullshit about purpose? And she was giving us a little bit of that, but in a nice way. And it allowed us to kind of talk through some of those things as well as advance our relationship, which has been really powerful and I think will lead her to new heights as we progress in her running journey. What do you think, Steve? Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to – I have an athlete right now who um, I know is going to have an, an amazing race coming up. Um, the results are – the results of training are obvious. She had a race result that was pretty amazing. Um, and she came to me recently and said, hey, a couple weeks out from a race, I need to – I asked – no, I, a couple weeks out from a race, I was like, okay, I need – just want to make sure I don't. I looked through all my records. I don't have a statement of purpose from you. Are you clear on your purpose? And her statement back was, "I haven't even messed. I haven't, I haven't gone anywhere near that. I can't figure it out." And I so I just said, "Okay, we'll leave it alone. We'll talk about it after the race." Right? Didn't want to bring up any drama. Evidently, it was enough. My just my statement was enough for her to go back through the entire mental training episodes, all of that, most of them, to try to figure it out. And she said to me later. I don't get it. I still don't get it, you know? And I'm realizing now that that interchange that you and I had, I didn't I didn't highlight that 26 and 20 23rd and 24th episode of our coach athlete relationship. It took today it took me going through that yesterday and trying to find that to see the practical applications of the statement of purpose. But many people I think their experience of that statement of purpose exercise does not really come down doesn't doesn't come to fruition. It doesn't even happen because it's the easiest thing to to bulldoze through. But I'll tell you this, when people hit plateaus, when people hit dark, bad patches, when people go and see Jesus, statement of purpose is going to be the end, will be the thing that that comes. Whether they recognize it as statement of purpose or not, where they see that as the critical, crucial role in not achieving or or how, how they get through tough times, um... Those who have done statement of purpose and gone through that and done the hard work to doing it will always know where they stand. And those who haven't are just waiting for a challenge to come. Um, in the case of the athlete I'm talking about, I still there's no way I would go through that all now. It's like there's just it's just we'll deal with it when we deal with it. But it made me realize that it's that that here is a here's a, an athlete who really needs this and eventually will be in need of it. But I do agree that and this person has followed nearly every prescriptive recommendation that I've made but this one is really hard for people so we I, I say that all in line to say hey we get it <coughs> seems a little weird seems a little woo-woo but Chris and I are never going to back down in fact 
Chris is like on the front lines of this. This is his lead <laughs> go-to in every single situation almost that I've experienced watching you with your athletes and where you are and your description. So, and, and Chris is not a woo-woo guy. So <laughs> it's just, it's really crucial and really important. And, um, you know, maybe there'll be future episodes on practically applying this and getting a little more specific. We do, we do a good job in that episode, Chris, but it was pretty early in our mental training and could, 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 could actually call for another, another touch base with, but we'll there see. There may be more for sure. I, I also liked my question because I think if you have trouble answering that question, why do you run? Reframing it as what would happen if you didn't run or couldn't run might help focus that thought process for some people. So there you go. That was my number three. What do you have for four, Steve? So four, I'm not sure we're going to be able to pull a quote out. I'm not sure. Maybe you found one. I don't know. But I think our best episode that we've done is episode 33, um, The Alchemy of Running with Kevin Leahy. I think the one that I initially read, you know, our coach-athlete relationship one was phenomenal. But this was 10 episodes later, Chris. And uh, it really highlighted, we, we, we have so many places where you can see our dovetailing of ideas or we corroborate each other's feelings or ideas on things. I think Kevin did an amazing job of teasing out some of our differences and some of those areas. He thought it was going to tease it out even more. You know, he thought he was going to get a real sort of diametrically opposed science versus magic um, viewpoint here, materialist versus, uh, you know, uh, paranormal or something like that. But he didn't get that because we really are pretty, pretty similar in where we stand. But I think he did a great job of teasing out how different coaches can be different and how we see our experience with our athletes differently. And he did a great job of, of, of teasing that out because of his Socratic method and the way that he does what he does. So I think that for our listeners who want to get to know, you know, we've talked a lot about philosophies. We talked a lot about our viewpoints, but I think this episode is the single best episode for really teasing out what Chris is about as a coach and what Steve is about as a coach. Um, and I thought it, I thought it was really good stuff. Yep. We ceded the floor to another moderator, Kevin. Yes. And he did a phenomenal job. In episode number three, 33, here's a little clip of that. But we're starting to get to something I do have a lot of experience with is the, um, the, little, the little monkey upstairs. Hmm. The, the, the situation the runner faces where, and, and I, you know, from the runners that I know, I know one that, that faces a lot of demons up there that block the opportunity. So I'd like to just to kick off magic and start with you a little bit, Steve. How, how do you help your runners manage that little talker up in the head? What, what's going on there? Um, the, way, the way I do it um, is I beat them up. <laughs> Explain. Yeah. I, there's a there's a there's an athlete that I I Chris is laughing. He's I didn't get it. I didn't I didn't get a chance to coach this athlete because I, when I coached at the University of Texas, I coached women, not men. But I was always jealous of certain athletes that I would see. Every coach looks at athletes that are super talented and have a matrix of of talent level, but they're missing one little component because most people at the super elite level are just missing one little thing. And this one athlete, I knew exactly what it was. And what it was was I needed he needed to get put in a cage and he needed to get poked with a stick. Because the rage wouldn't come out appropriately. He was a rageful person. He got into lots of fights. He did really poorly, be, poorly behaved. But it wouldn't come out when it needed to. 
And the coach that he had at the time is a master of psychological manipulation and really got a lot out of this athlete. But I always thought there was just one more thing that he could do. And so I don't do this to every single athlete, but I do think frequently what I try to do is to put them into significant distress physiologically or psychologically to see how they'll respond. And then that allows you to start to sort of push their strengths and weakness matrix. And I think this is some of the biggest part of the magic is knowing the strengths and weaknesses that your athletes have, working the strengths early, work, I mean, working the weaknesses early, working the strengths late. So early on, because we usually plan things out in six months or four month windows because we're talking about marathoners. And so we try to work psychologically. I try to work with what they're good what they're bad at early because they're way more willing to do it this is why i also tell people i need 18 months i mean when i when i start working with an athlete every single one of them here is if you're not going to give me 18 months you're not going to get the full benefit not one because we know physiologically they won't get the benefit but number two i won't know how to poke them and in order to poke them with a stick appropriately i have to because that's very few people male or female very few people respond to the carrot the, the stick is way more important than the carrot when you are trying to do a physiological task because the brain gets in the way, it jumps in the way, and if you can poke the bear, if you can stick them a little bit, they'll go, oh, oh, whoa, what just, what just happened? And you'll get a change in response. So this is a little different what you're saying than what they say, what is fairly standard in the field of you know, performance in, in the workplace, which is play to your strengths. That's a pretty common reference. And what you're indicating here, Steve, is part of the magic is poking the weakness early on, just really delving then, into is it real or not and then play to the strength because you you will not have i say healthy happy strong i mean you have got to be happy you've got to get a good starting line experience which is our main goal as coaches to get them on the starting line ready to roll you want to go back to their strengths later on but you have to have shown them that they have the ability to overcome their weaknesses because they're the athletes are always human beings do not want to st- test the test the edges even those athletes who are skillful at testing edges still don't want to do it and that's the coach's role honestly in my view is to push find the blind spots make sure they see where they're at in their blind spots push it push it push it and then go back to what they're really really good at and then you're able then the nice thing about our sport is that it really does lend itself to that in a lot of ways it's like just naturally what how the periodization science of our sport really works. We, we don't make them run really, really fast at the end of a cycle. We actually try to make them run slower and a little bit longer, and we freshen them up right at the end. So it kind of allows us to kind of play through that as a, as a narrative, if you will, in their, in their short cycle of a marathon prep or in the longer cycle of a career arc. But that's what I do. I, I really try to push and prod and poke to appropriately get a response that allows me to do my job better because stress is a great indicator of how people will react in the world. Great. So you wield your magic, Steve, with the idea of a stick is greater than a carrot and that it deserves to be poked in the right place at the right time. And culturally, we have a really, I, I have a, I mean, I think that if I were raising a child, I'd be thrown in jail, right? But we do have a sort of a, an understanding that, you know, the old Nobody Vince, puts the aerobic baby right, in the right, corner. No. The, Vince, the Vince Lombardi idea of tough love and tough, you know, the, about that idea that it's going to be hard and going to be tough. It's, there's still a sub- substantial amount of the of the American public at least that is expecting that from a coach and they want that and I think that in some ways that's where Chris is challenged more than I am because I don't think it's as natural for him to to go there with his athletes he does in a different way I go there quickly by just saying hey I've got an excuse coaches are always supposed to push their athlete to the edge um you know and so I just do it because it so much more quickly 
shows what the athlete's capable of and what they're sure. going to be able to do. Well, let's hear from Chris. Chris, well, what do you got on this? I definitely do it differently. Yeah. <laughs> let's hear your magic. And it's ironic that I'm coached by Steve. But for me, my magic is not, in, is not magical. There's a famous quote from the book Running with the Buffaloes, which we talked about on our podcast with Kara and Adam Goucher, from Mark Wetmore, who's the coach at University of Colorado, distance coach, famous in our sport for coaching Olympians down to collegiate national champions. And he said in that book, there are no miracles in running. There might be miracles in other sports, but there aren't in running. And his magic with his athletes was being able to tell them what they could run in a given meet to the point where they believed it because he was right. And so for me, it's, it's more along those lines where my spidey sense as a coach is having an ability to, to know where an athlete is and what they can accomplish, telling them they can accomplish it, and then making it so matter-of-fact that it's going to happen that they don't have a chance to not believe me, and then they just go do it. So you're building the structure around right. imp- showing them after workout, after workout, after workout, that what, they think, what exactly. you think they're capable so of. My process to. is almost like, like where Steve might talk about a hard workout and kind of like throw it in your face and build it up and make you almost scared of it to draw out you know, some response. I would do the opposite and be like, look, this is no big deal. I wouldn't give you anything more than you can't handle. Just go do it. To the point where they do it, and then they believe. But what happens with the listener that's not getting there? That y- y- you're applying the magic, and the magic isn't working. Well, that's harder because, you know, sometimes I'm wrong. Sometimes you get people that are afraid of pain. We talked about it on our last podcast, episode 32, where we talked about the fear of pain. And some people, especially new athletes to the sport, don't really understand what hurting should feel like. I've had people ask me, what should I, like, how hard should it be? And, and so there you have to just lead them more slowly through the process. It's like give them a little bit to push them into the dark spaces so that they learn they didn't die and then do it again. So it's just a longer process. In, in that sense, for me, Steve would probably just throw them in the deep end. So there you go. Kevin drew out <laughs> the Chris, difference between Chris and Steve yes, as did. coaches. <laughs> It's yes, funny. he did. Yes, he did. It's funny because this past weekend we had a big quality workout for Team Rogue, long run quality workout. And as Steve was prepping us, telling us the instructions for the workout, he had bullet points on the board. <laughs> the first bullet point was, what you know, what do we have to do? Second bullet point had something to do with the, the course and the way we were running, the direction and so forth. The third bullet point just said failure (laughs) (laughs) in all caps. (laughs) And he went on to explain as he was talking about it, what failure meant in the context of that workout or how to avoid failure, essentially. But the idea was he was going to basically try to throw us something we couldn't handle and see what happened. Uh, And as typically happens with Team Rogue, they we nailed it. They nailed it, <laughs> and so I I should refrain from doing that. But my method is it's attention getting. You know, it's like how do you get someone's attention? I've always I've learned this. I've, I'm a big mouth, Chris. I've been running this big mouth for a long, long time, and so I've learned how to throw shit out there and then backpedal quickly to try to get it to turn into what I need it to turn into. But I get people's attention, and I think that really helps them think through things. And occasionally. I lose folks, and occasionally things aren't, don't go 
the direction that I think they're going to go, and there's no way for me to backpedal out of it. So, but I'm still going to stick by that, and I think that you, on the other hand, you know, your your methods um, very different, but still incredibly effective. And the athletes that actually commit to following your program consistently and do the work that you ask them to do, they're they they get an incredible experience because the road is laid out for them methodically in a really consistent way and they know where they're going and they know what they can expect and they're able to reach the goals that they have in a way that they can see um and for me it's almost like i like the magic and as i said i like to poke the bear so we just do it different ways but i think at the end of the day that's what makes it makes rogue interesting at least we should clarify that you don't ever put rudders in cages. I don't. No, I don't. I have did, not yet. You did threaten there on that episode. All right. So that was episode 33 with our guest, Kevin Leahy, who got got us to kind of highlight our differences. Now, let's talk about my fourth. And this one is episode seven. We also did a series. We've talked a lot about our mental training series. We also did a series starting with episode one on our training principles episodes 1, 7, 10, and 15. This one, this clip's going to come from episode 7. I like it because I think this may have been the best I've ever articulated first principles when it comes to our training method. So I wanted to make sure that people are grounded in the foundation that is aerobic development. So here we go. Why is it so important to build your mileage to be a better runner? Because 90% of the athletes that I deal with on a day-to-day basis are aerobic midgets, period. It's They're not at the point where they've had year after year after year after year of development, um, unless they were in the case, like in your case, where they were a soccer player in their youth, which in which case they have gotten a good bit of mileage in, and they do have some aerobic development. But aerobic development takes exceedingly long to develop. It takes a long period of time of steady, consistent running, Week in, week out, month in, month out, year in, year out, in order to see gains. And so when we look at improving the adult runner, and especially the adult marathoner, but this is a case in all regards. As I told someone very recently, when I coached at the post-collegiate level, my 800-meter runners ran almost the same weekly mileage as my as my um, 10K runners and even my marathoners. So aerobic development at whatever your distance is crucial um, one of my mentors, um, I got an opportunity to train with him for a number of years, and then I've also been able to bounce lots of ideas off of him at almost every U.S. championships I go to. This gentleman's name is Joe Vigil. If you don't know who Joe Vigil is, you should do a little research on him. Um, he is uh, Dina Castor's former coach. I think he may, I don't know if he's still, I don't think they're still working together, but she, uh, he was responsible for some of the best marathoning that has ever happened in the United States at, at the highest level. Um, and his view was all distance runners needed to run 100 miles a week. And, and he felt that was true 1,500 meters on up. But he said especially so for the marathoner. Now, 100 miles a week is way more than our average everyday person can probably manage and handle. But the point should be taken that in his view, the most important thing that they could possibly do was find their bodies and get their bodies into a zone in which they could maximize their aerobic development. How much oxygen how much better can they get at getting oxygen to go work to the mu- go to the working muscles that are necessary? 
You get oxygenation happening at very easy run pace. You're also having mitochondrial buildup at easy run pace. The faster you run, the harder it is to build your mitochondria because they have to have a sort of safe space to be developed. So, you know, physiologically, it's incredibly important in order to develop this higher mileage or as many miles as you can manage in your in your life. Um, but the reason for that is because we come from a place, many of us come from a place where we are not developed appropriately aerobically. Yeah. When I talk about this with athletes, I kind of talk about it in two ways. There's the physiolo- physiology of it, the sort of scientific reasons, which are what you described, which is that you're literally, as you build your mileage, you're trying to change your body's construction, how it's formed from the inside out which means at the cellular level, you're adding mitochondria to your cell, to your cells. You're adding blood vessels, capillaries to your muscles so they can get more oxygen to them. You are adding red blood cells so that your blood can actually carry more oxygen. You're also improving the efficiency with which oxygen, can, oxygen can move from your lungs into your blood. So you're literally changing how your body is constructed from the inside out. And as you say, that process takes time. Many, and you can't do it at faster paces. Right. So if you run faster, you are benefiting when you run faster. But those are different physiological checkboxes that are getting checked off. And it means if you're checking those physiological boxes off, you are not checking off the aerobic development ones that you just so eloquently described. You should get you to describe that every time because when I say it, it always sounds like choppy, but you just explained it very, very well. Those of you who don't, who want to know what happens physiologically, just re-scroll back and listen to what Chris just said. So I love the compliment there from you at the end, Steve, <laughs> but, but more importantly... This is this is first principles when it comes to training. The miles matter. The miles make the champion, as we talked about in episode number one. If, if you don't believe our bullshit about mental training and excellence or making a decision or any of that stuff, if you at least believe in the physiology of running and the fact that if you run more easy miles from whatever your starting point today, your aerobic system will build, you'll change your body, as I said, from the inside out, and you'll get faster. Simple stuff, Chris. Simple. Nothing else, nothing much to say about that except that is golden words and well put and on the money. <laughs> so get out there. Do more. All right. You're number five, Steve. What's your last? So I'm totally cheating on my last one. And I don't even know. I don't even want you to play a clip from this one, Chris, because it's not one. I just think that our crowning achievement to this point in the 50 episodes that we've done is I, is the mental training episodes that we put together. I think um, there's nothing like it out there. There's nothing like it focused specifically towards distance runners. We've You and I both have done a lot of work in this regard. We did a lot of research before we started it. We spent a lot of time reading other people's works in these regards. And um, again, I'm not trying to pat myself on the back or pat you on the back, Chris, but there's nothing like it. It's unique. It's excellent. And I think it's going to stand the test of time. I do believe over the years we'll, we'll make it stronger and better and, and create um, maybe more cohesive and maybe a little bit more implementable. But the core concepts are there and they're excellent. And I think that if we've done anything, Chris, with these first 50 episodes, it's to hopefully change the game in the way that our, the average runner is thinking about their performances. You know, the, 
the goal, Rogue's goal at the very beginning was to bring elite level training to the everyday athlete, to the everyday runner. And I think, Chris, in true Rogue fashion, following that core principle, that core vision that, we, that I had for Rogue at the beginning that we all believe in that are at Rogue, this is taking it to the next level. And um, I truly believe um, it's excellent work and it's great stuff. Can it be? Can it be made better? Probably, but it's it's there's nothing like it. It's completely unique, and I highly recommend that anybody that wants to raise their game, that wants to be a better runner, that wants to take to take command performance racing to the next level. This is how you do it, and we we give a great template for it. So yes, that series again, episodes 6, 11, 13, 18, 20, 25, 32, and forty. We talk about purpose as we've mentioned already on this show we talk about overcoming your limits we talk about fear of failure and how to deal with that we talk about facing your fears broadly we talk about this concept of personal power and how do you take that inner animal or beast inside of you and unleash it on a race or in your training and so it is cool um, and I then we bring it all back together at the end. We bring it all into a practical application. Becoming a warrior at yep. the end with our final episode of the series in 40. We've got a lot of comments on it. I think people think it's probably some of our best work. I think it's been good for me as a coach to codify some of it, to talk it out in the way we've done it, both theoretically and in some of the practical applications we've talked about. So if you haven't listened to that, we highly recommend it. As Steve said, we won't play a clip. We've already played one clip from episode 11. We won't play a clip here to bore you, but definitely go check it out. I think these are also episodes that you can go back to and listen to over again if you've already been through them once to kind of pick out new nuggets the second time around. All right, so now we're going to go to my number five, our 10th episode in this trip back through our old episodes. This one for me comes from episode eight. This is actually an episode that some may not have listened to because it it's when we talked about Austin Marathon pacing. And so the half of you that listened to us from outside of Texas may have glossed over it thinking, how what could I possibly learn from these guys talking about a race that doesn't matter to me? But I think there are both practical applications in terms of how you break down a race course and pacing strategy that are helpful for, from this episode, but also James are our former coach employee and reverend of sorts around these parts came on and really preached some mental training concepts in a sense in the context of the Austin race that I think were really cool and powerful. And he, he pulled out a quote in this one from a, from a monk (laughs) that (laughs) was sort of an inspiration for one segment of, of our race strategy discussion that I wanted to play because I think it's, It's powerful for a lot of reasons, so I'll play that. Here we go. So if I were to close off this section, I really do want to quote my favorite Tibetan monk. Steve, you want to say the name again? His name is Sakyong Mifam. He wrote the book Running with the Mind of Meditation. He's the son of Chungpa Trogpa, who is uh, one of my personal heroes. Uh, I read this book. It's a phenomenal book. Highly Um, recommended. I love it. Yeah, I'm reading it right now just for like life application. I think it might actually be best for that because I think it's running applications other than the wonderful quote you're about to quote uh, could be a bit dubious. But anyway, it is great for life life lessons. Yeah, it's totally the headspace I'm in right now. But for at least this first section of the course, I want you guys to be there. And, And he says this, 
My meditation teacher taught me that with aggression, you may accomplish some things, but with gentleness, you can accomplish all things. Gentleness is like water. It will eventually reach its goal. Aggression is like fire. It's quick and it's gone. To be gentle is to understand that life is a journey deserving content attentiveness. Therefore, it is gentleness that allows us to finish a marathon, not putting pressure on ourselves to immediately think about the next one. Gentleness is just doing it in such a way that we can do it again and again. And he's applying that to marathons in general, but I think we should think about it from mile to mile on that day. I want to ask you one question, James, because I get to be the devil's advocate here. Um, Talk a little bit just quickly about gentleness in the way that most Western people think of in the context of of this quote. Uh, Many people think of gentleness in our worldview as sort of being about being soft. Um, I think that there's something a little bit different about a different sort of view of gentleness that he's discussing. You want to talk a little bit about that so people are prepared in those early sections of the race for um, not a gooey soft experience, but maybe something else? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think in some ways it applies as far as the race is concerned. Like Chris said, um, just a smart plan. Like you're putting this cap on not because you want to be weak and soft for the sake of being weak and soft, but because you respect the course, you respect the distance itself. Again, this, this concept would apply whether I was running Austin or not. If I was on the flat Chicago course, which I'll tell you about in just a second, um, this concept would still apply. And I even had a conversation this morning. It's funny. You brought up just our current culture. Um, I've often experienced in my own life, I think it's okay for me to say that my friends would describe me as kind. And I think it's interesting that a lot of people will often mistake kindness for weakness. Um, but I think there's a strength that has to be there first in order to apply kindness on a consistent basis. And the same here, there's got to be a strength of maturity and understanding. My first three marathons, I did not start off with the mind of a Tibetan monk. (laughs) My first three marathons were a disaster, and I'll tell you more about them eventually. Um, But yeah, there's a strength, there's an understanding, there's a maturity. Even water itself can crush and kill anyone. Um, but I like that he used that quote of water, that it flows and it eventually reaches its destination because that's someone having a mindset of, I know what I want in the end, so I need to do X, Y, and Z at the beginning in order to get there. Preach, Reverend James. Preach, Brother James. Preach. I love it. I love it for so many reasons, not just in the context of that race and how you should approach the beginning of a marathon, but also... I think it has a lot of lessons for, as you said, life, but also running broadly, which is that being your best running self as well as being your best self isn't about fire. It's about the strength, composure, the flexibility of water, and the ability to mold, be malleable, but also bring strength at the same time. And with running, we talk we've talked before about how it's a relaxed runner is a fast runner. So I think that kind of comes into play here. It's like a a runner who's getting the most out of, out of themselves are both relaxed and smooth and in control, but also extremely strong and fierce at the same time without being aggressive. If that makes sense. Things you're describing are Ilya Kipchoge in a, in a nutshell, (laughs) right? right? It's what you see in him. They call him the, you know, the, the the Zen monk. He looks like he's he looks like he's 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 got those he's got that, that look about him, you know. And yet, <clears throat> I pity the fool, right, who is running next to him 
<clears throat> and in that space of trying to beat him because he knows the biggest challenge he has is himself and getting through what he needs to and the race itself. And then <clears throat> he'll deal with whoever's there at the finish line, you know, whoever's still there. It also reminds me of another quote, Chris, of the great Bruce Lee. Be like water, my friend. And that is uh, in, it is an entire <clears throat> philosophy wrapped up in that. The Tao Te Ching is really about that, but it's just a great philosophy. So it's really it, cool. It also brings back analogies of things like the formation of the Grand Canyon as an example. You know, it's running is a long-term game, just like erosion or, or the power of water oftentimes is a long-term process. So to me, that's a good way to kind of encapsulate everything we've done with the podcast Very true. to this yes. point. And I'm glad that that ended up being the last clip that we played. So thank you, James, for bringing us that wisdom. Thank you all for listening as we've gone, gone down this path. Now I wanted to talk about quickly what's coming. We've got both more episodes weekly <laughs> coming, as, as always. And if you have suggestions on those about what you want to hear from us, Please do send us an email. You can send me an email at chris at roguerunning.com. We'll also be sending out a survey in relatively short order, at least giving you a link to a survey that you can fill out to give us some ideas on what you'd like to hear us talk about for upcoming episodes as we enter very soon as into our second year of podcasting with Running Rogue. But also we've talked about it and we've teased about it. We've got a training program for those that are interested coming up that we're going to be working through the podcast. Basically... And, and this will evolve over time as we learn, but this is going to be kind of a first stab at training people because you've asked through the podcast. And so what we're going to do starting in December, and this is going to be a very kind of focused initial program because we want to try to get as many people on the same page as possible. We're going to start December 3rd, and we're going to focus with this initial podcast-based training program on people that are racing Boston, April 15th, or marathons between April 15th and May 6th. We've got a lot of rogues that are also going to Vancouver Marathon on May 6th, so that's sort of the out end of the range. But we really want people that are racing within those three weeks to kind of jump into this first program because it allow us to have the focus we need to really give the guidance that we need to to get you peaking in the right way. So we'll start December 3rd. We'll really allow people to kind of jump in any time in December, but then our focus will be on those marathoning April 15th through May 6th. We're going to have three levels offered of kind of training macro cycles. The first will be more for a first-timer, somebody who's kind of accomplishing a marathon for the first time or maybe more inexperienced in the marathon. The second will be more intermediate level, and the third sort of a more advanced program for those that have been in it for a while and and really maybe focused on getting specific times so basically the way this will be structured is we're gonna give you a program that you can follow what we call a macro cycle we'll call it a macro cycle with a day-by-day -day training plan including the workouts that you'll do we'll also have a weekly podcast that only those in the program will have access to where we'll talk for 30 minutes or so on the plan for the upcoming week in terms of what the training looks like, what workouts should look like, how you should attack those workouts, and then also some other tips you should be thinking about at that point in the program. And then we're going to have a Facebook group with those in the program where you can share questions and experiences with those training with us. 
And so it's a private group, right? For a private mm-hmm. group that only those that have access or that are signed up for the program will have access to. And so the idea is that we want to really help those that are trying to get a specific goal in the marathon in the spring through that process. This group may be smaller for us than future groups because we're really trying to figure out this kind of remote coaching process. Most of our coaching happens vir- vir- you know, in real time here with live bodies in front of us. So this is really our one of our first experiences in kind of a virtual program, certainly our first through the podcast. So it's an experiment of sorts. We'll learn from it. But, you know, there will be other versions of this to come if this doesn't quite fit what you're looking for. But but for us, we want kind of a focused effort to really experiment with this the first time. We'll talk about price and sort of other details in a second, Steve, but what will be your case for somebody who might actually fit the description of training for a spring marathon? Why should they consider this program three basic points number one you've got tried and true boots on the ground coaches who know what they're doing who are preparing you for races they know about um number two it's that's chris and i we've been we've coached thousands and thousands of athletes towards marathon goals help them achieve their goals we've also gone through thousands and thousands of runners who did not reach their goals and we've learned from those mistakes and those areas where we weren't able to help people reach their goals. And we know what we're talking about. Number two, this is as close as we can get. We know group training. And this is as close as we can get to creating a group environment in a virtual way. And that's the focus of this group will be to try to keep, um, to give people individual help and get them individual instruction through the, through the program, but more to utilize that Facebook page for people to feel like they're a part of something. And I also think, as many people have told us with our podcasts, that they feel like they're a part of something bigger, a part of something they're not on their own. They've they've got help out there to allow people to feel like they've got that help. And and finally, and maybe most selfishly, Chris, we don't want to have advertisers. So this is a great way for us to create a revenue stream that allows us to continue to see the value of doing this for the next two to three to five to seven years, right? So um, for us, it's a, it's a new challenge. It's something else we can try to do and it's some, a place where we can maybe provide a value, provide service, but also help us um, generate a little bit of revenue based on, on the stuff that we're putting out there and keeps us, Chris, from having to have advertisers and breaking up the context of what we've been doing. So this is a solution that we came up with. Yep. Plus, of course, we love helping runners achieve their goals as we talked about at the top. So this is our way to do that. You can find more information if you're interested in the program. It will be at this link, which is roguerunning.com forward slash podcast training. Go to that link, check it out. If you have other questions, of course, send me an email, chris at roguerunning. We're going to offer the program for 200 bucks for the full five months, kind of a one-time upfront fee, although we're going to give a discounted rate of $150 to the first 20 people that signed up. So if you're in the, the sort of first 20, because we want to make sure we have critical mass to kind of make this program worthwhile, we want to get at least 20 folks in the program. So we're giving those first 20 folks $150 uh, rate, $50 discount off the 200 bucks. Everybody after that will be 200 bucks. So go check it out, roguerunning.com forward slash podcast training. And again, if you have questions, email me, chris at roguerunning. And, of course, we'll be talking about it a little bit more in the next few episodes as well just to kind of answer any questions that may come via email and make sure everybody hears the answers to the answers to those. So there you go. Now you have a chance to be coached by Steve and I if that's of interest. 
and we'll get that started in December. We're also going to give a teaser episode, right, Chris, where we're basically going to produce the first episode will be that we'll, we, will, we will have a free episode, the, one of our original episodes, one of the w- episodes that we do with that will be coming out on, a mon- on every Monday. That will <clears throat> sort of give everybody a taste, a 30-minute taste of what, 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 we're gonna be, what it's going to look like. So those who don't want to, to pull the trigger but want to hear, hear a little bit of what it's going to be like and are, are a little bit nervous to pull the trigger right away, they'll get a clear indication of, of what that is. Exactly. So there you go. Rogue running rogue training coming your way. Check it out. Roguerunning.com forward slash podcast training. Well, thanks everybody for listening to this episode 50 and for kind of taking a trip down memory lane, as I said, through some highlights. Hopefully, hopefully you, you learned some things or perhaps it sparked some interest in prior episodes that you need to go back and check out. But again, we appreciate you listening every week. And of course, check out that training link. And if you have ideas on episodes to cover in the future or topics to cover in the future please let us know as always you can also check us out at our website roguerunning.com or follow us on twitter instagram and facebook at rogue running thanks again for listening and we'll talk to you next time